Welcome to the Tao of Christ. This is Marshall Davis. The Tao of Christ is a podcast which explores the mystical, intuitive, and contemplative side of Christianity. In particular, it explores what is called the unitive life or union with God, also called Christian non-duality or non-dualism, in which I call unitive awareness. As a Christian, I am continually dealing with the relationship between Christian doctrine and mysticism, or to use other terminology, how non-duality relates to Christian theology. At first glance, they would seem to have nothing in common. Theology is a rational, intellectual discipline which attempts to say something objectively true about God. That's dualistic thinking. God is not an object. Even Thomas Aquinas, perhaps the most influential of church theologians, said because we cannot know what God is, but only what he is not, we cannot consider how he is, but only how he is not. But even Aquinas seems to advocate the via negativa, or the apophatic theology here. But then he goes on to write his Summa Theologica, saying all sorts of things about what God is. Theology is a rational discipline that speculates about God to do that, and necessarily has to set God apart in one's mind for observation, thereby making God into an object of study. It assumes that God is someone or something out there somewhere in heaven or in the spiritual realm, which the mind can observe and comprehend at least in part. That is dualistic thinking. Of course, theologians will be the first to say that one cannot understand God fully. They are quick to quote verses like Isaiah 55, 8, that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But then, like Aquinas, they tend to forget that when they are theologizing. And the people listening to them believe that they are actually saying something objectively true about God. It's an easy thing to do. Every time we say something about divine reality, we do the same thing, at least to some degree. That's why the Tao Te Ching says, He who speaks does not know, and he who knows does not speak. God is the unspeakable. Anything we say about God is not God. And yet we do speak about God. I speak about God. Jesus was a speaker who talked about God and the kingdom of God. But when he spoke... He used parables, which were an indirect way of speaking about that which can, cannot be spoken of directly. But still he spoke. Some religious traditions and some religious and spiritual teachers, including some teachers on non-duality from non-Christian traditions, are not so careful about this distinction that I'm making. Some spiritual teachers seem to imply that what they say about the unity of reality is true, not just experientially or metaphorically or mythically, but philosophically. But non-duality is not a philosophy. Likewise in Christianity, the descriptions of God put forth by mystics is not theology. Even though most Christians mistake their words for that, 
They are not trying to describe God. They are trying to communicate an awareness of God in words, knowing all the while that words can only dance around the periphery of the reality to which they speak. Say trying to describe color to the blind or music to the deaf. You can do it, and some descriptions appear to work better than others, but talking about light and seeing light are two different things. Describing the taste of grapefruit and tasting grapefruit are two very different things. That is the difference between mystic vision and theology. Having said that, theology is not a waste of time, as long as one understands its limitations and its insufficiency and its description of reality, it can be useful. It is analogous to the difference between the photograph and that which is photographed. This analogy is imperfect because one cannot photograph God, of course, but, but hear, me, hear me out here. I can take a photograph of a view from a mountain summit. and If I am a very good photographer, it can evoke some of the same feelings that one has when actually standing on a mountain summit. If I am a bad photographer, it may communicate none of that experience. So it is with doctrine and theology. Doctrine is the collective photograph, you could say, of a religion's vision of divine reality. It is not that divine reality. It's not even close. It's like the difference between reading a printed menu and eating the food. Doctrine is not even the vision of that reality. It is twice removed from reality, yet often it still carries a scent of the incense from the Holy of Holies. That is why it holds such a high place in most religions. For many people, I think the vast majority of people, that third-hand scent of the divine is very important, if not crucial, because that may be all they know and all they have. It is like an aroma of baking bread wafting out of a bakery. It smells wonderful, and those who have never tasted bread may think that is all there is, but there are some who follow the aroma through the streets until they find the bakery. Then they look in the window, and they see the fresh-baked goods, and they enter the shop, and they pay their money, and they taste the bread. Tasting the bread is mysticism. Smelling the aroma from a distance is theology. The price one pays for tasting reality firsthand is high. Jesus calls it bearing one's cross and dying to self. You have to give up everything, including oneself, and most are not willing to do that. The cross of Jesus is the symbol of the price that one must pay to taste the bread of life. For the door to this shop is the eye of a needle. One must give up all to enter. That's why the rich young ruler was not willing to do that. That's why Jesus called his disciples to give up everything to follow him. He was not just giving instructions to 12 Galileans 2,000 years ago. This is the reality today. And to continue the analogy, when one ingests the living bread, it becomes part of you. You and the bread are one. You are what you eat. That is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's what the sacrament points to. 
It has nothing to do with the physical bread and wine offered in church. He was talking about himself, and not just his human self, but his divine self, not just the human Jesus, but the eternal Christ, for he and the Father are one. Let me get back to Christian theology now. Christianity has a whole set of doctrines that one is expected to believe in order to call oneself a Christian. First of all, I need to point out that Jesus taught no such creed. He insisted on no doctrinal litmus test for his followers. He simply said, follow me, and they were either willing or not. But he did not insist on believing in his virgin birth, or the Trinity, or the inerrancy of Scripture, or the substitutionary atonement, or anything else that modern Christians deem to be essential. But Christianity later developed doctrinal statements which came to be called creeds and confessions of faith. Those are what define Christianity today, and they divide Christianity, divide one Christian group from another, and divides Christianity from all other faiths and apprehensions of the divine. Now, we can argue over these doctrines and how they should be interpreted, and Christians do that. They divide over which ones to accept and which ones we should not accept. And we can label those who disagree with us as heretics and as false teachers. We can label some doctrines as orthodox and some as heterodox or heresy. Or we can seek to see what they are pointing to. We can see them as metaphors of the divine. We can catch the scent of heaven in them and follow the scent into the Holy of Holies. That is how I think Christian doctrine should be used, not as descriptions of God, or definitions used to decide who is in and who is out, who is a true Christian and who is not, who is saved and who is condemned. We should not weaponize Christian theology and use it to attack and demonize people who do not hold to exactly the same list of beliefs that we do. We follow doctrines to their source. To use the oft-repeated phrase, they are fingers pointing to the moon. They are useless unless we go where they point. So let's take one doctrine, for example. Let's take the doctrine of the virgin birth. It's not one of the most important doctrines, historically speaking, in Christianity. The Incarnation and the Trinity consumed much more the time and energy of the early church fathers and the church councils and the creed writers. But in more recent centuries, the virgin birth has been one of the more controversial doctrines. It became one of the so-called fundamentals of early fundamentalism in the early 20th century. And it continues to be a litmus test for many conservative and evangelical Christians as they seek to determine who is and who is not a real Christian. It has become wrapped up in the whole controversy over the authority of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture and biblical inerrancy and infallibility. First, I need to point out that the doctrine of the virgin birth was not so important for the earliest Christians We can tell that simply from the New Testament. It is mentioned in only two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. 
is not found in the earliest gospel, which is Mark, or in the gospel of John, which of the four canonical gospels is the most likely to actually be connected to one of the twelve apostles. The Apostle Paul, whose books are the earliest writings in the New Testament, seems not to be aware of the virgin birth. When he mentions the birth of Jesus in Galatians, which may be his earliest epistle, Paul simply states that Jesus was born of a woman. No virgins mentioned. The doctrine of the virgin birth states that Jesus was not conceived using the usual reproductive method. He had no earthly father, but was conceived miraculously in the womb of a virgin. Now, I'm not going to debate the historicity of the event. Liberal and conservative Christians argue about that. You can make a case that the virgin birth really happened, and conservative biblical scholars do exactly that. And you can make the case that the idea arose later and did not really happen. That is an historical question that needs to be examined using the scholarly tools of historical science and biblical historical criticism. I'm not doing that here. Whether you believe in it historically or mythically, in either case, spiritually, it points to spiritual reality. As the doctrine stands, it points to the union of a human being, Mary, with God. It points to union with God. The language used in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke has sexual overtones. It says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. But the doctrine insists it is a non-sexual, intimate, spiritual union between a human being and the eternal God. The Annunciation, which describes her impregnation in the Gospel of Luke, is a mystical encounter that a young woman had with God. The Magnificat, in this same chapter, of Luke 1 is Mary's response to this union with God. It starts off with Mary saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Her innermost spiritual essence serves as a magnifying glass, you could say. To see God reminds me of Meister Eckhart's words. The eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. In and through her soul, Mary experiences a union with God more intimate than any sexual union. Yet, like sexual union, it has a physical dimension. She physically gives birth to the Son of God. That's why the Roman Catholic Church calls her the Mother of God. The virgin birth has to do with the birthing of God in this physical life. God comes forth from the physical and is incarnated in the physical, not just in individuals, but in human society. Mary's song, the Magnificat, includes a 
marvellous description of how the unit of life is lived out in community, especially addressing issues of social justice. She says he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. In many traditions, a spiritual life involves a withdrawal from society to live a contemplative life, in the desert or in the forest, but not so here. The story of the virgin birth unites the spiritual life with social action. It points to how union with God is expressed in societies and through governments. Considering this doctrine of the virgin birth, it is no wonder that the Roman Catholic Church has elevated Mary to such a lofty status. She is an example and model of incarnational spirituality. According to the doctrine of the virgin birth, God was incarnated through her. You can talk about this physically, and you can talk about this spiritually. In either case, God was enfleshed in and through her, and God came forth from her. There is a wealth of spiritual truth behind this doctrine of the virgin birth. It has to do with the enfleshing of the spirit. Mary's experience is a type of incarnation which prefigures and informs the incarnation of God in her son Jesus. The virgin birth is a powerful image of how God is incarnated in human life, and in particular, a woman's life. It is a powerful feminine image in a religion which has tended to be very masculine and patriarchal. Mary's faith is part of this process. When she receives the divine invitation, she responds with the words, Let it be. These words of wisdom inspired Paul McCartney's song. They are echoes of Moses' name for God. At the burning bush, I am that I am. And Jesus' self-description, I am. It is no accident that another Mary, the same name, in fact there are several Marys, but I have in mind Mary Magdalene, is present at the empty tomb of Jesus. The tomb is a type of womb. It was a cave, like the cave which served as a stable where Christ was born. Here is a Mary again at a cave, womb, tomb, at the rebirth of Jesus from a womb in the earth. Jesus comes forth from the tomb. This resurrection is likewise depicted in the dominant Christian theology as a miraculous physical event, just like the virgin birth. The resurrection was a powerful spiritual, mystical experience for this Mary, just like the virgin birth was for the other Mary. I should note in passing here that both these Marys' names in Hebrew are Miriam, the named after the sister of Moses, who was a dominant figure in the Moses story of the Exodus. And Mary's Magnificat is patterned after Miriam's song. 
This discussion of Mary of Nazareth just touches the surface of this dimension of the virgin birth. The main point of the virgin birth has to do with the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It has to do with the incarnation of the eternal in the mortal human known as Jesus. When people talk about the virgin birth, they tend to focus on the virgin part. But the birth part is just as important in Christian theology. It is the heart of the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. To say that Jesus was a man who was physically born disputes the over-spiritualizing of Christ and the Christ event. That is what the Docetists did. They said, this was in the 2nd century and 3rd century, they said that Jesus only appeared to be human. They said he was actually a spirit who did not even leave footprints in the dust of Galilee. There is a strong tendency like this in mysticism to over-spiritualize. This is true in Eastern and Western expressions of non-duality. For example, Eastern mysticism insists that the world is an illusion. It is maya. It is all in your mind. It's not real. Everything is an expression of consciousness and resides in consciousness. Consciousness is all there is. And those words are true when they are understood as an interpretation and expression of direct awareness. But as an idea, it is not metaphysically or philosophically true. Otherwise, reality would not be one. If everything resides in consciousness, and that cosmic consciousness is what we call God, then it is all real because God is real. God is reality. That's why Christianity says that the physical world is real, as real as God, because it is an expression of God. That is why the Christian worldview gave birth to the Enlightenment, which gave birth to science. Both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures say that the universe was spoken into existence by God. That's a way of saying that the cosmos is the word of God coming from God and expressing and partaking of the reality of God. Now, this might seem like a trivial distinction to make to some people, especially since non-duality, in non-duality, everything is ultimately one anyway. It's just a matter of words. But this distinction in language has very real consequences in how we live in the world and interact with the world and how seriously we take the suffering of people in the world and the social injustices against groups of people in this world. Are they just illusion and therefore can be ignored? Or are they real and have to be addressed? The symbolism of the cross of Jesus says that this suffering is real and it is of God. The virgin birth insists that God was born into this world. God became flesh, and therefore sanctified flesh, and realized, made real, this world. John's Gospel says that the Word, the eternal Christ, the Logos, made the world. Everything was made through him, John 1 says. Also says that this Word became flesh in and through 
and from within this world. In fact, it emerged from this world, from the womb of a woman in this world. The word is not something from outside, but emerges from within. That message in the beginning of John's Gospel is John's equivalent to the virgin birth. John 1 is teaching the same thing as Luke 1, but in different words and ideas. Now, the virgin part of the virgin birth, which is what most people concentrate on, points to divinely enfleshed humanity. There's more going on here than physical cause and effect, more than the natural process of the evolution of life on this planet, or more than a supernatural birth. The natural world is divine, while not diminishing the reality and value of the physical. Divinity is at the heart of birth and death and resurrection. There is a lot more that could be said about the doctrine of the virgin birth, and I could talk a lot more about that, but to do that, I would have to talk about Christ, and if I start doing that, we're already getting into another doctrine, which is a doctrine of the Incarnation, or and also Christology. And it took the Christian Church three centuries to figure Christology out, so I'm not going to try to articulate that in a, a minute or two left of this podcast, or even another whole podcast. So I will leave this discussion of the virgin birth here for now. I hope this example of a doctrine has shed some light on the role of theology in the Christian expression of unitive awareness. Christian theology can be an expression of non-duality. It points to our essential union with God. But too often doctrine is set up as its own little intellectual fiefdom that can shut off the Christian from knowing this reality of the kingdom of God, to which it points. It doesn't have to be that way. One can be a Christian doctrinally, holding all the traditional doctrines of Christianity, and express one's unitive awareness of God through that doctrine. That is what I do. In fact, doctrine was originally meant to express that awareness. We Christians don't have to leave behind our religious tradition and adopt Hindu or Buddhist or Taoist terminology or philosophy. All language and thought systems and religious traditions fall short. Yet all language and thought systems and religious traditions can be used to express the one reality that we know as union with God or unitive awareness. That's the Tao of Christ for this week. Thank you for listening. You can access other episodes of this podcast at thedowofchrist.com. You can respond to anything you've heard me say here by going to my Facebook page, which is called The Tao of Christ. You can email me. You can find the email address on my Facebook page. You can find my blog, Spiritual Reflections, as well as a link to my books at marshalldavis.us. Hope you join me next time for another episode of The Tao of Christ.